Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is Dennis Frost, a historian of modern East Asia at Kalamazoo College. We are discussing his book, Seeing Stars, Sports Celebrity, Identity, and Body Culture in Modern Japan published by Harvard University Press in 2011. Sports celebrities are a constant presence in contemporary culture. Here in the States, we see athletes in television and print advertising. Current and former players are regular contestants on one of the most popular TV shows. Children and adults identify with their favorite players by wearing replica jerseys. And visits by athletes to schools and children's hospitals are regular occurrence. The presence of sports stars is so prevalent that we seldom stop to think about it. When and why did athletes become prominent celebrities? And is our adulation of sports stars here in the States at all similar to the place of athletes in other cultures? Something that Dennis Frost explains in our interview is that the glorification of sports stars is surprisingly familiar when we look at Japanese history. Throughout the 20th century, sports stars have featured in Japanese popular media, in advertisements, in books for children, and in stories extolling physical health and personal virtue. And the lines of the narratives are familiar as well. Japanese sports stars were described as having natural talent improved by determined practice. They were often from humble backgrounds, but rose up through discipline and hard work. And their success was often owned to the wise and selfless guidance of their parents. As Dennis points out, there has been little study of sports stars across cultures, but the potential is there for interesting and potentially revealing research by looking at these similarities and distinctions in different star systems. Dennis's book gives us an original look at 20th century Japan and sports history. From the book and the interview, we learn about compelling figures such as the sumo grand champion Hitachiyama and the remarkable female track star Hitomi Kinue. And in reading the book and talking with Dennis, I found myself thinking in a new way about sports stars that I'm familiar with here in the States. I begin the interview by asking Dennis how he became interested in Japanese studies and the history of sports in Japan. Um, I actually started work on Japanese history in college. Uh, I kind of, it's one of those things I often tell students it's a a dangerous thing to start studying something like Japan. Um, I came in bored with French, decided to take some Japanese language as an undergraduate, Um, also enrolled at the same time in a Japanese religion class. And by the end of the first 10-week term, uh, I was hooked uh, and decided to kind of become an East Asian Studies major, ended up spending a year in Japan studying abroad, um, and then came back after that year and had completely fallen in love with I was already kind of a history buff, so had fallen in love with the fact that this country had this really long history that I could, you know, could study so many different things and, you know, never run out of things to study. Uh, and so I was, had decided at that point I was going to become, uh, get a PhD in history, go on to, to teach. Uh, and so I ended up spending a couple of years after I graduated back in Japan, uh, researching different topics uh, and then went to graduate school. And it was when I was working on the dissertation, actually that uh, I was initially looking at something completely different. Uh, I was working on the history of uh, youth activism in Okinawa. Uh, And 
it was was kind of delving into this particular. There was a riot um, that had happened during the period of the U.S. occupation, and I kept running across these references to sporting events and people calling on people in Okinawa to boycott sporting events sponsored by the military. And I was like, well, that's kind of curious, um, you know. And I, I didn't really know much; hadn't really thought about sports in Japan. I mean, I of course knew about sumo and baseball. I had attended a couple of baseball games when I was there on uh, study abroad and several other sports meets and. Uh, so I said, this is curious. You know, I don't know if I've read anything about sports in Japan. And so I started digging and didn't find anything and said, well, this might make a really interesting topic. Uh, and as I was exploring it through you know, some of my graduate seminars, um, I kept running across, as I was looking at you know, some of the primary materials in some of the magazines, uh, references in the 20s and 30s to sports stars, um, which struck me as kind of odd because I never really thought about you know Japan having sports stars uh, at that point. And um, so you know when I I said, well, how does this happen? How do you get sports stars in Japan? Where do they come from? Uh, and that was really the the genesis of the the topic. And uh, got to Japan for my dissertation research and and kind of dove in and. It, amazingly uh, rich materials that uh, have been almost completely unexplored. Um, you know, some really, and the people I worked with at the different libraries were just terrific in kind of providing me access to materials, helping me track down sometimes really random uh, materials. So, so it was it was a lot of fun. I, I I joke with people that it's probably one of the few people who got to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Japan for research um, <laughs> almost every day for several weeks. So, oh really? So that that's, was a lot of fun. That's one of yeah. the places you worked. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what were what were the sources that you used then, in terms of uh, you know the materials that you'd find to study to study sports stars in Japan? Uh, it seems that they were uh, pretty much similar to the resources you'd use to study sports stars in the states. Yeah, very. I mean, that's one of the things that it was kind of interesting to me when I started looking at this. Um, for one, there, it, I was kind of surprised by how little has been done on the history of sports celebrity as kind of a phenomenon. Um, I mean, because there's lots of work done on individual stars, um, mm-hmm. but nobody's kind of looked at the kind of overarching how this developed and how it emerged over time. So I'm kind of struck by that. But uh, but when you do find people that are looking at it, they're, of course, looking at the media. Uh, and so that was a huge body of, of, of my sources was, was from the mass media. So uh, early stars, of course, is almost uh, all newspapers, but then you get into magazines, uh, and I actually found of all of the stars that kind of are featured in the different chapters, I found video footage of every single one of oh, them. Oh, really? Huh. Um, some of it's silent uh, footage, of course, it's just you know images of them performing, doing some kind of activity. But I found video footage of every single one of them. Um, and with the last star I look at, I guess I end with Ichiro, the book, the epilogue. Um, but the star before that, uh, Gushiken Yoko, the the boxer from Okinawa. I have um, just piles of materials. You know, all he he actually gave me uh, copies of all of his fights. He's a boxer, so he had you know his 13 title defenses. So I have copies of each of those fights, and uh, you know, tons of boxing magazine materials, newspaper articles, television shows where he showed up, biographies that are written. I didn't. I was able to do an interview. He's one of the only stars who's still alive. Uh, that I talked to, um, so I did an interview with him. So a uh, kind of a very wide variety of sources, including um, even a number of uh, government documents. I was able to kind of find references to people from abroad asking to have these stars come and participate in various, um, you know, athletic competitions and things like that. So, so a big, wide range of materials that, like I said, was really just a lot of fun to kind of dig into these uh, and, and kind of find some new stuff. So as you were saying, there's not really a uh, um, a body of scholarship on uh, sports celebrities in cultural history, and this is something that you discuss in the introduction of the book. and And you present the term, and in, in, I guess in in presenting a theory of of sports celebrities, you present the term star systems. So could mm-hmm. you uh, talk about how does a, how does a star system function in in cultural history? Um, well, in star system, there is that term has been used, um, and I do kind of make that point um, in other areas. It's often used to talk about the uh, the Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. the way Hollywood stars are produced, and it talks about the media and the studios, uh, and you know the management, and and that's what people talk about when they talk about a star system. And I was using star system, and it it kind of came to me in a you know weird sort of way um, when I was looking at these different stars. Um, 
I was at one point I was reading a Sports Illustrated magazine here about stars in the States. Um, and it referred to some athlete in reference to someone else referring to them. As, and I can't even remember the specific athletes and that was a while ago, but you know, as an anti so-and-so mm-hmm. I said, well, that's kind of odd, you know, cause I didn't necessarily know the, who this other person was, but by reading this description of what this person was, it was like, well, I automatically had a sense of what this other person was cause it was just the exact opposite. Um, and so I said, you know, this is interesting because it's something I had kind of noticed, but really not, you know, thought through. And as I started to kind of try and piece this together, how do we come to understand stars and where do they, the meaning, where are the meanings that they, they take on? Where do those come from? And I said, you know, one of the key ways that that happens is through comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you start thinking about sports, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, sports is all about comparison. Uh, you have records uh, that are, you know, have you know, been widely described as kind of one of the fundamental elements of modern sports. Uh, you have direct competition, uh, you know, pitchers, hitters competing with each other. Um, even, you know, even in team sports, you get that. Uh, and so, so this idea of kind of people being compared, it makes a lot of sense. But then as I started looking at this and looking at the materials, what I realized is that those comparisons are just built into how people come to understand an individual sports star and any sports star. Uh, and in particular, this idea that, that these, they come as kind of these big packages mm-hmm. of comparisons. Uh, and, in, uh, you know, I used the example of, of Gushiken Yoko in the introduction, um, who is often referred to as uh, Japan's Rocky, mm-hmm. which, of course, that refers to the fictional boxer. Um, and that the movie happened to come out at the same time that Gushiken became a world champion. So people in Japan were kind of familiar with this. But, you know, Rocky has very little in common, it would seem, at first, except for the fact that he's a boxer. Uh, and that Gushi Ken was a boxer. But then when you start looking, well, what does Rocky mean in the Japanese context? Well, it was about his poverty. And it's about the fact that, you know, he had to work hard and he kind of rose up from nothing to become this, you know, amazing figure. And that was what was kind of being implied by this comparison of Gushi Ken to Rocky. So, and that, that you know, what that actually happens in other contexts as well. When you start looking at each individual star, the way that, that I talk about their celebrity image, all the kind of things that are written about them, um, how those those are produced, and the meanings that they have are kind of filled with these kind of comparisons. And depending on who's reading it at what point and what comparisons are being made, you can get very, very different interpretations. Uh, so that's kind of a kind of summary of the star system idea, and that's something, again, that I was kind of struggling to kind of figure out how to uh, make sense of all this material that I had. And I, you know, kind of stumbled on this, this idea of comparisons and how they come to have, you know, big widespread meaning to lots of different people, lots of different times. So looking at the, at the comparisons that are made, uh, you know, between stars, what mm-hmm. do you find is, is more significant? The, the comparisons that are made about, uh, you know, two athletes, athletic abilities, uh, you know, their performance on the field or is is what more is what is more important these uh, uh, these themes that connect their characters or their their background stories? Uh, I think it's both. What initially generates the comparison, of course, of course, is the actual com- competition uh, or the idea of competition, because that's one of the interesting things when you think about things like records. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. are comparing people that never, in many cases, competed against each other. So it's a very abstract. But then you get these ideas that emerge um, that are much more than just the, com- the comparison of the numbers. You know, even in the numbers are seen kind of objective. Um, I mean, a, a great, great example, this is, of course, uh, Barry Bonds um, and the home run debate, you know, is, is, it, is it valid? Um, you know, and then, you know, does that even, if you look at that in a different way, well, those numbers mean something very different in Japan. We have someone like Osada Haru, who has a higher number of home runs than Barry Bonds. But, you know, there's an argument that, well, the numbers are not really objective because they don't matter. So, so even in a case where, you know, the athletic um, achievement itself is kind of the basis of the comparison, there's other things that surround that. There's constant, there's, I guess, one way to think, but there's spin. Mm-hmm. Um, around what those numbers mean. And so it's not even just the stories um, about how, I mean, part of it is the stories of how they got to that point. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think you find with a lot of these stars, I kind of find eventually what happens is you get this paradigm, a kind of particular way of our, our understanding how sports stars become sports stars emerges in Japan. And I think probably elsewhere. I mean, 
but um, but I think that's part of it, and that's part of the star system. But that depending on the context, um, you know, at a particular historical moment, the numbers may mean more, um, or you know, a particular interpretation of those numbers may mean more than at a different time. Uh, you know, and when you look at like. Uh, I'm trying to think of a specific example from the book. Uh, someone like the Hitachiyama, his weight, um, he's, a, he's a sumo wrestler, so his weight is very important in the sumo world. He's big, um, but he's not, as I point out in the book, he's not necessarily the biggest <laughs> sumo wrestler. There are others that are bigger, but in some ways he's seen as more important. But then his weight, that number, in the United States, his weight suddenly is you know, a sign of his... You know, in suitability, basically, as a, as an athlete, how can you call this person an athlete? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that same thing, looking at it from different contexts, is interpreted in in very different ways. So that's one of the things that the star systems allows you to start thinking about is is the actual context and how those meanings of even the same very same thing can take on very different meanings depending on who's making the comparison, what stars are being compared, what aspects are being emphasized in the the comparisons. But there were um, narrative themes that you see in, in the stories of these stars that are similar to the narrative themes you see in the in the stories surrounding American stars. And you mentioned with uh, the boxer Gushiken, his rise from poverty, and uh, and you see that a lot in terms of uh, this is a person who was a natural athlete. But yet, you know, really worked hard and strove to be the best. So, so what other themes did you see that would be familiar to American sports fans? Uh, I mean, I think the the hard work, um, the idea of uh, what I talk about as the kind of self-made star, mm-hmm. um, that it's through hard work. You know, the idea that you get maybe some lucky breaks. Um, there's an idea of listening very closely initially to your family. Uh, and in the Japanese context, that is uh, articulated with the idea of filial piety, mm-hmm. um, you know, following the advice of your parents, a very kind of traditional kind of Confucian idea. Um, but I think that idea in itself would actually sound relatively familiar to many Americans. I mean, take out with the filial piety, but, you know, listening to your dad yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, listening to following his advice about how to pitch or how to throw the ball. Or, um, you know, so the, I think that that is, is not unfamiliar. Um, and then, you know, the the fact that many of these people, they, they're really good, they're very gifted, they work really hard, but then they also get, you know, someone that comes in that, that helps them out to achieve success, usually some kind of coach uh, that, that sets them up um, and, you know, helps them stay on the path at a, po- at a point where they might have left. Uh, and those those kind of cliffhanger moments, too, that you find in each of these stories where if, you know, you're looking back, you know, one of the points I make in, is that, all of these stories, of course, are written biographies, especially are written after these people are already famous. Um, but as you're reading these biographies, there's cliffhanger moments where it seems like they might have actually left the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, they almost gave up or they almost didn't take the path. Uh, when, of course, everyone reading this knows that they did. But it's this moment. And I think that you find some very similar uh, narrative devices in stories of, of athletes in the United States and in Europe as well. Um, just, I think it's just part of the story, telling a really good story. Uh, and so you see this as well in the Japanese context. Well, so let's turn to the, the stars that you discuss in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, you begin with a star of sumo wrestling, Hitachiyama. Mm-hmm. And at the start of this section, you write about the history of sumo. And one of the things you note is that sumo is often described as a traditional sport of Japan, Mm-hmm. even though it's not as traditional as, as some people think. So could you give us something of an overview of, of sumo's development? Um, okay. <laughs> we, we have about about an hour, right? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, we Sumo, I mean, it, it's like a lot of other places around the world, and this is a point that many people talk about sumo, that wrestling is part of something that human societies do. Um, you see it in lots of other cultures. And so there is sumo we know about from very early in Japanese history. It probably didn't look a lot like what we see today. Um, and there is some, you know, evidence of ritual sumo. But what we think of as sumo, what you see in the sumo ring today, has its roots in about the 1600s, mm-hmm. um, around that time. And it has to do also with kind of changes in the political structure of Japan at that time. Uh, you know, various, there had been a period of kind of intense conflict, and from about 1600 to 1860s, you get a period of relative stability, um, in, in 
dramatically increased urbanization of Japan, improved transportation, uh, and all those things really facilitate the development of a popular sport. Uh, and so sumo, it gets based in some of these large cities. You know, it starts off with um, a few guys standing on corners yelling at people, you know, come and, come and attack me, see if you can take me down kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it eventually kind of is codified partly over concerns of order, uh, that it's very disorderly to have people standing on street corners yelling, and you know, there's all kinds of potential for, for disruption. Uh, so eventually what you get is a, a kind of, you get a sumo ring, and a, a places that these, these matches are held, there's rules, there's regulations, you get professionals, there's a strict division between spectators and participants uh, in the, the matches. Uh, and so all of that, it comes to resemble much more what we think of as a popular spectator sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happens, you know, again, after the 1600s. By the time you get into the 1700s, it's pretty well established. Um, and so you have um, then a very long history in Japan of a professional spectator sport. Uh, so from about the, you know, the mid-1600s onward, uh, you've got a professional spectator sport that is beginning to produce what we might think of as as stars uh, in Japan. So that's where kind of sumo is really kind of where I realized very quickly that I was going to have to start there mm-hmm. uh, because it was where the, a lot of the kind of things that happen later on are rooted in, in developments that happened earlier. And one of the things that people don't really think about when they think of Japan, they think of Japan as a very group-oriented society, um, you know, so how could there, and I've actually found people saying this in some of the materials, you know, they don't have a culture of individualism, so they would, don't emphasize individual stars. When in fact, one of the earliest forms of kind of celebrity that you see is sumo celebrities uh, in the, the Tokugawa period, this period of 1600 to 1800. Um, you get people, sumo, sumo figures that are recognizable to people, especially in the cities, but then also in other parts of Japan. Uh, so that in individual stars happens much earlier than, than even was the case in, in lots of places. And I mean, the United States wasn't even necessarily around uh, at that point. So, um, so that's something few people realize when, when they're thinking about Japan and its history of sports and celebrity. So I thought that was really interesting to find. So then in the, by the late 19th century, though, sumo mm-hmm. is in decline, correct? Yeah, it's, uh, part of it has to do with changes in the political system. Uh, part of it is also um, you get new forms of culture, uh, physical culture coming in, new sports, uh, new ideas about the body and what's appropriate for the body. Uh, in particular, there's a, a lot of concern that sumo wrestlers essentially wrestle naked, um, and that is something that people are not, you know, not appreciating, uh, especially coming in. Um, so, so there's big challenges to sumo, and so, but by the time you get into the Really, the the 1880s that has stabilized the population of the major of Tokyo, which uh, had previously been Edo, that returns to kind of what it had been before and continues to go up. Um, and so these, you get sumo kind of by the time you get to the 1880s, it's starting to to kind of stabilize. It's become again this kind of popular spectator sport. There are different pockets of sumo in other parts of Japan as well, um, but then that's also at that point where you start getting media, uh, mass media in Japan. Um, we had, you know, print, uh, woodblock prints were kind of circulated before this, but it's when you start getting newspapers that you really start seeing a shift because as I, as I point out, suddenly you can talk about sumo wrestlers, not just, you know, get a print. And if you weren't there, then you're going to have to wait months to get it. Now the transportation has improved so that now you can read an article about the sumo match that happened, you know, the day before and know who won and, you know, you can start tracking this much more easily. So that really transforms the sport and how people see, see the sport uh, in many ways for the first time. Um, they're seeing images of wrestlers. They're, they're reading about them, reading about their daily life. It's, you know, one of the things that you, newspapers everywhere have to find stuff to fill the space on the page. Uh, so one of the things that starts getting covered is the daily lives of wrestlers or their practice sessions, things like that when they're not you know, actually participating in a match. So, so it's a, the media itself also then kind of transforms the sport uh, in several ways, including alter, altering the way, indirectly altering the way that the, the champions and, and championships are determined, um, things like that, that that happen. Again, it's not unprecedented. You see similar developments in, uh, in football in the United States. Um, 
as I point out, in, in baseball, these things change as well. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a, a key moment in sumo. It's, it's just at that moment that we have this figure, Hitachi Yama Taniemon, who kind of comes onto the scene, becomes a, a grand champion of Yokozuna. Um, so he really capitalizes on a lot of these changes that happen in sumo, which is partly what propels him to be, one of the things that propels him to be kind of this, this major sumo star that, again, everyone in Japan knows. He travels all over the world. He, he met with President Roosevelt. Um, so it becomes a very, very famous figure in Japan and, and even beyond that. So I'll ask you to give something of a, a biographical sketch of Hitachiyama. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and part of the other reason that I, I, I emphasize him is that I really see him as kind of a transitional figure because he is at the kind of really uh, the, the right place at the right time. He's in sumo, is popular in sumo as these developments are happening. He's able to take advantage of the media. But one of the other key factors is that he has a fascinating biography uh, compared to many of the other sumo wrestlers. He was um, of a fairly relatively low-ranking uh, samurai family. Um, he eventually enters sumo. His family's upset with him for entering sumo uh, because he's, he's a very large guy, a very strong um, guy. Um, but he enters sumo. His family's very upset with him. Um, but he enters allegedly, um, according to the different stories that have been told, partly with the goal of kind of transforming this sport and making it honorable again, um, which again is kind of a little bit of reading back from what happens afterwards. Um, but uh, but he goes on to he, he you know rises up to the ranks relatively quickly and then then leaves town at one point, um, kind of abandons his sumo stable as master, um, and then eventually comes back and then rises up through the ranks becomes. Becomes a Yokozuna uh, around, say, 1903. That may be a little off, but around 1903. Um, and then continues to really dominate the sport uh, for the next you know, 10 years. Uh, but it, one of the things that makes him especially famous is that he travels to the United States on an extended study tour. Um, and during the time when he's in the United States, he visits all these different places around the country, uh, a lot of athletic clubs. Uh, he visits the, several of the, the major colleges uh, and meets with professors and people in the athletic clubs at the universities. Uh, and then he also meets, as I mentioned, with uh, President Roosevelt in the, uh, I think it's the East Room of the White House. Um, they actually put on an exhibition for the, for the president and several other people. Um, so he comes back to Japan and, of course, is, is you know, being courted to be in the, become a politician, um, but he does not do that. Instead, he stays in the sport, becomes, continues to train other uh, wrestlers even after he retires. He becomes one of the leaders of the Sumo Association. And so in a really major way, he kind of defines um, sumo uh, after he kind of becomes kind of this figure. He's, he's a celebrity, really well-known, but then he continues to dominate the sport. Uh, and his his approach to, to how sumo should be interpreted, the idea of this, many of the things, again, that we associate with sumo tradition, the, the top knots, he becomes kind of a, a big advocate of that. He becomes an advocate of of the way that certain ways that sumo wrestlers dress. Um, the first uh, building constructed to house sumo exhibitions, he is uh, linked to that as well. So he becomes a figure that is uh, kind of seen as a... a pivotal figure in the history of sumo, not just this celebrity that everyone in Japan knew, but he's also you know, a foundational figure in the sport uh, as well. So, so that's a, that becomes another part of his, his celebrity image, this idea that he is sumo, mm-hmm. quite literally. So throughout the book, you talk about uh, how the star system influences mm-hmm. cultural views of the body. And this mm-hmm. is particularly interesting in your discussion of Hitachiyama. So, so how did the celebration of, of this wrestler connect to Japanese understandings of the body at the time? Uh, one of the, the, the things that I found that was really interesting, in particular about Hitachiyama, is he, when he dies, uh, he had agreed to have an autopsy done so for the sake of science. Uh, and the results of that were actually published mm-hmm. in, very widely in the newspaper. Um, one of the the main sources I worked with in for dealing with Tachiyama was a, a collection of newspaper scrapbooks um, from the Sumo uh, Museum in in Tokyo, uh, and there were just pages and pages of articles uh, detailing the the reports about his his heart and the size of his brain, 
Um, and so, so one of the points I make in that particular chapter, uh, talking about that, is that, and about the autopsy results, is that it, in many ways, it, the, the, the fascinations that, that people had with Hitachiyama's body, this idea that he's a really big body, that in itself wasn't new. Um, that actually goes back, you can find evidence of that from earlier, you know, in the, definitely in the 1700s, there are prints, woodblock prints of sumo wrestlers that depict them as very large, you know, show them in comparison with the average Japanese man, um, or uh, oftentimes we'll have detailed uh, measurements written down, the length of their hands, how much rice they eat, you know, all kinds of information like that was, was available. And so one of the, the points I make is that for a long time, people had already kind of come to expect what, what we kind of might think of as you know, in another context would be kind of weird. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not going to ask me how much I weigh as part of this interview, but that's pretty standard for athletes. I mean, it's not unusual. And for a wrestler, of course, it would be par for the course. And Japanese people were, that would have been completely normal to them by the time you got into Hitachiyama's time. What was unique and different about Hitachiyama in uh, this autopsy was that it was much more medicalized. Um, and that's a shift uh, in terms of how these things are understood. I mean, this is being done by doctors. It's being reported with, in many cases, the very official names. Um, and even some of the earlier measurements that you see for Hitachiyama, there's things like they're measuring his lung capacity, which is something you just never saw measurements for in earlier periods because, you know, that wasn't something that was deemed important. Um, so you see a shift in how the, the body is being understood. Um, with Hitachiyama, and then the autopsy is the, probably the best example of this. Uh, and then one of the other things that happens is that there is about, it's, it's a few years after Hitachiyama dies, there is a short story that's produced as part of um, a series of books on hygiene uh, geared towards elementary school kids. It's like a, a textbook type book. Uh, and it's actually, there's a, a short story called Hitachiyama's Heart, and it talks all about how um, Hitachiyama's heart comes back to see this boy in a dream, and he's, the heart is talking to the boy about how he needs to be healthy, have a, a, a very large heart. And the basis for that story is that many of the newspaper articles have reported on the fact that Hitachiyama's heart was basically twice the size of an average man. Um, and so Hitachiyama is telling this boy, if you want to have a large, healthy heart like me, you need to do all these things. You don't need to drink. You shouldn't drink too much. You should exercise. And so it becomes a kind of... Uh, a way to train these young people using this this sports star's body part um, to train young people on how they should behave and become stronger citizens. Um, but as a, I make a point in the book, I mean, it's it's somewhat ironic because you read this short story and children wouldn't have recognized this, but one of the other things that Hitachiyama was famous for was for overeating mm-hmm. um, and for drinking like crazy. Um, he would he supposedly chugged whiskey from beer steins. Um, so, so this was not a guy who could, would, in his life, actually demonstrated any kind of uh, temperance <laughs> in any way. But here, his heart is preaching this to to young children. So, there's a, a kind of again, it's kind of that that particular context and the meaning that's being given at that particular moment was on this element. Uh, and then, of course, you know, today we hear someone's heart is enlarged. That tells us that it probably was actually unhealthy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so it's, a, it's kind of this, this uh, looking at the, the moment and the way these kind of stories are being interpreted but, and how they're being used for a particular agenda in that context. Um, you see something similar with Hitomi Kinue, the female track star. When she dies, she dies suddenly. Um, widely believe that she died of uh, complications related to tuberculosis. Um, but uh, her death prompts uh, what I, I, I talk about as kind of a popularization of um, sports medicine in Japan. Uh, there's a whole series of articles in, in one of the major newspapers that's done in relation to Hitomi's death um, and how they need to have you know better sports medicine in Japan. Uh, and so it brings sports medicine into the fore in a way that you know had not been there before. But it's, her death kind of does that. So so there's there's one of the ways this happens is you get this an emphasis on kind of the medical side uh, and there's increased attention to that um, in relation to athletes' bodies. But one of the other points I make um, is that uh, when you look at someone, and I, I make this point towards the very end, in particular with Ichiro, that we, we become so used to hearing this information. Um, and what it does 
is that it always, I mean, it may not say compare yourself to this, but we almost automatically do. Um, and uh, so, so that in some ways it's constantly setting up these kind of comparisons for us, you know, and well, how does my body measure up? How, how do I get my body to look like that? How do I? Um, and so that that's something that's, that's kind of there that is, in, in, that it happens. And, you know, one of the best examples of this is the, and this is very old, actually, again, um, that sumo wrestlers use, they would put their hands down and, and something and then put them on a piece of paper, basically creating these large handprints. And these became collector's items uh, as early as, you know, the, the late 1600s. Um, and so, but you can still find these and your first instinct, I mean, I had this happen to me several times and I've seen it, you know, and they have these all over the, around the sumo stadium, uh, in, in Tokyo, uh, these handprints and, and kind of in metal and you constantly see people walking up and sticking their hand in that mm-hmm. sense of wanting to compare, um, and seeing how you measure up. So, so that also kind of creates a sense of, awareness of our bodies and awareness of the norm. Um, so, so there's, there's a way in which sports stars, even through something as simple as just reporting these numbers, uh, it has an impact on how people think about their bodies and the bodies of their people and their society. So, so you already mentioned Hitomi, the, uh, the female mm-hmm. track star of the 1920s. So can I ask you to introduce her for us, please? Yeah. Um, Hitomi Kinue is, was probably in the, 20s and, and early 30s was probably the most famous um, Japanese athlete. I mean, there were several very famous athletes during that time period. Um, but she was a, uh, a track star, had several world records in um, um, various running events, also I think the long jump and triple jump maybe. Um, but she she first comes into fame um, kind of, I think, about the age of 16 or so. Uh, she was participating in a high school track meet, the first time she had ever participated in a track event. She'd been drafted basically because she'd been good at tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is brought in to participate in this track meet and sets a, a national record in long jump. Uh, and so suddenly she gets all this this attention, ends up um, going on to um, attend one of the first early school, uh, one of the early schools, maybe not the first, um, schools for physical education for women in Japan to train people to be teachers. Um, and so she goes to this school, um, and while she's there, she ends up participating in some other events and also sets some more, some other records, including I think our first unofficial world record is set during that period. Uh, and so she very quickly becomes this uh, kind of recognizable figure because she's setting these world records. Uh, and, and one of the, the points that I, I make in the, the chapter talking about her is that just just how unusual that would have been. I mean, women were not participating in sport in a large way. They had, it had begun right as she was kind of beginning. I mean, mm-hmm. the first earliest kind of forms of women's participation in sports is right around the time that she's kind of coming onto the scene. Uh, so so that kind of makes her really stand out. Um, and the fact that she's setting world records, national records, uh, she ends up taking a job with um, with uh, one of the, the newspapers in, in Osaka um, and works in as a sports reporter for them, um, but also they kind of allow her to maintain her amateur status so, and then kind of support her as she kind of travels to compete internationally. So she travels to the women's international games, mm-hmm. uh, which were the Olympics. It's very few people know kind of the, the history of Olympics. Olympics, um, the women's international games that were being held in part because the Olympics did not allow women to participate in many <laughs> athletic events. Um, so, so she participates in that and I think just, she sets several records, wins several events, um, gets the all around, uh, athlete award for those games. Um, and this, you know, of course propels her to international fame. Um, and then she eventually comes back to Japan, uh, participates in, in the Olympics in, uh, 1928 and, um, becomes, She's she's expected to win several medals uh, and fails to do so, and then ends up entering the 800 meter run, which she had never run in competition, and then finishing second uh, in that. Uh, and of course, all of these athletic achievements, of course, are propelling her to this kind of, you know, amazing level of of fame within Japan. Adding to that is the fact that she is constantly, as I kind of mentioned earlier, she's 
constantly going out and promoting the idea of women's participation in sports and women's physical education through talks. She gives a lecture series. She writes books. Uh, I think she published three three different books and, and several uh, countless articles uh, that she wrote, all of them emphasizing these ideas of what it means to be a female athlete. Um, and so she's promoting women's sports. She's, so that's kind of also kind of raising her kind of level, people's awareness of her in Japan um, and, you know, achieving these records. And then, as I, I point out, there's, this is all happening at a point when she is strange uh, by mm-hmm. Japanese standards. This is completely unusual. Um, what she's doing is not what women should be doing uh, from, you know, the perspective of, of many people in society. Uh, and um, so there's also this kind of, constant uh, undercurrent related to her. There's a lot of pride and prestige, especially when they're talking about her on the international stage. She's, you know, the world's Hitomi. Um, but then at the same time, there's these kind of undercurrents about, you know, why is she showing up? Why is she doing better in international competition than the Japanese men? Why, why um, is she actually a woman? I mean, she doesn't look like a woman. She's too muscular. So there's lots of discussion of her body. Um, and, you know, what it means to have a woman's body um, in Japan. And so, so there's this kind of tension, and, and part of the tension, as I, as I point out, has to do with the context, that it's not just that she's unusual because she's participating in sports, but she is also doing this at the exact same moment that there's this widespread concern in Japanese society uh, about the changing role of women in Japanese society, women entering the workforce in a much larger way than they had before, women being kind of active in popular culture. This is the same time, she's active at the same time as the, the kind of infamous uh, Moga, the modern girl in Japan. This kind of, and, and Hitomi doesn't fit the description of the modern girl at all, except for the fact that she's single, um, is kind of making her own living, um, and doesn't necessarily follow kind of the, the kind of Patriarchal, patriarchal expectations of you know being a faithful daughter, going and getting married, and then having more children of her own. So, so those are all kind of this is the moment in which he told me is kind of becomes the star. Their things are all kind of connected uh, to to her celebrity image. And then tragically, she dies. Um, she goes to Europe again to participate in the um, the women's games, and then travels around Europe. And on the way back, she becomes very ill, and then dies. Um, very, very young, shortly after that. So uh, in 31, I believe, is her death. I'd have to double-check the dates. I'm, I'm a historian, but I'm sometimes not good with my dates. <laughs> but I joke with my students. That's why I'm generous with them on dates. So, so yeah, so she then, then, as I was mentioning, she becomes connected even after her death to these concerns about um, sports medicine and how we need to prevent this from happening again. Um, and then the other point I make about her image is that but there's also, as I was talking about this undercurrent, there's a discussion that emerges about whether or not she might have been a man or have mm-hmm. been a lesbian. And so that is also part of, of her celebrity image. And, and there's even people that want to kind of celebrate her as this pioneer. There's this constant effort that they seem to feel to defend her against those claims. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a, a – and that's, again, not unique um, to women in sports is one of the points I make is that we still see this to some extent happening today um, with, with female athletes who are too good. Um, and it was definitely the case at the, at the time when, when he told me was was – Active, so yeah, in reading, yeah, in reading about Hitomi, I was reminded of the American multi-sport natural athlete Babe Diedrichsen, whom we talked about yeah. on the podcast last year. And mm-hmm. the same with Babe Diedrichsen; she was cast in both a a positive and a negative light, and both mm-hmm. you know these same associations. Is she is she really a man? Is she a lesbian? The, the same things right. were said about her as were said about Hitomi. Uh, one thing I want to ask, picking up on that. Uh, you note at the end of your section on Hitomi that that she still gains attention uh, mm-hmm. some seventy to eighty years after her death. So, what is her? Uh, how is she viewed as a sports star now in Japan? Um, she, I mean, when I was um, doing the research for the the dissertation, which is where this originally started, um, it was just after one of the Olympic Games, um, and almost every time there is. Uh, an Olympic Games, how you get those, like we see in the United States, they get suddenly kind of documentaries about famous athletes from from different periods. Um, but so she is often featured because she was the first Japanese woman to win an Olympic medal. 
um, at the Olympics. Um, so she kind of comes out. Uh, it's one of these these moments. Again, it's part of that that star system. So anytime there's a, a prominent Japanese athlete who wins, it's instantly like, well, you know, she's actually linked often to Hitomi. Um, uh, so you get she kind of keeps coming back, but she's also seen as a a lot of the accounts of of her life depict her as a as a pioneer, um, as a kind of someone who in many cases, kind of a, a martyr for the, the mm-hmm. cause of women's sports, someone that society kind of didn't appreciate um, uh, like they should have, which is, I think, in some ways, I think she was widely respected by many, many people. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, a fascinating reading of her life. Uh, and in fact, there, her story was, um, I don't remember the exact date, but there was a, a children's uh, biographical series produced about her, um, I want to say it was probably the the 90s when it when it came out. Um, but I mean, so even you know, well after her death, she's kind of still being kind of portrayed as this exemplary figure meant to kind of inspire people, especially young women. Uh, and when uh, uh, Arimori Yuko won the uh, the marathon, um, she referenced Hitomi, uh, and Hitomi still comes up in popular culture references. There was actually I found this. After the book had actually already gone to print, I stumbled across a television series that referenced Hitomi Kinue as the person in the, the television series was a runner, had been inspired by the story as she'd heard of Hitomi Kinue. Um, so, so she's kind of this this inspirational figure. But as I said, there's still this controversy surrounding her and her her gender identity and how that how that complicates the picture for those who kind of want to to celebrate her. So the next athlete you discussed is uh, Sawamura Eiji, uh, who mm-hmm. some American baseball fans might be familiar with. The The award given each year to the best pitcher in, in Japanese mm-hmm. professional baseball is named in his honor. And this is one figure who, in your book, you talk about uh, he's really connected in a number of ways with the United States. Uh, you talk about how he provides a, a positive example of a Japanese player who was mm-hmm. able to stand up to the best American players in baseball. But then right. he goes into the military and he strongly asserts the, the wartime view of the mm-hmm. United States, not only as the enemy, but as the evil enemy. So could you say a bit about right. him? Yeah. And Salamura is, um, he's most famous. And I kind of start off for the, the chapter with this idea. Um, when I would tell people that uh, I was studying Salamura Eiji, Japanese people that I was studying Salamura Eiji, I got one of, Two responses like, "Oh, oh, he's the baseball player who struck out Babe Ruth," yeah, yeah, um, or he's the player who died in the war. Okay, uh, and there were lots of Japanese baseball players who died in the war, which is kind of so. It's interesting that people would identify him that, as that. Um, With the definite but, article, yeah, he's he's the baseball player who died in the war. Um, so uh, yeah, he's he's of course famous now because the award is named after him. That is actually a post-war, immediate post-war development during that period of U.S. occupation of Japan. There's an award created in his honor to to pay respects to the the leading pitchers. Um, and that's something I, I talk a little bit about that and how that happens in the, in the chapter. Um, but uh, but Samamura starts off he he's a, a high school baseball player. Um, and because of various regulations that have been passed by the Ministry of Education, he ends up dropping out of, of high school to play on the team that had been uh, recruited to play against the, the Americans, the American All-Stars that are coming over, including Babe Ruth, Jimmy Fox, Lou Gehrig, uh, and several several other people. And I think there actually I think is a new book uh, that's going to be out later this year about the, the series, mm-hmm. uh, this famous series in particular. Um, but uh, But this is... You know, it's this big event. There have been a couple of other series played with American All-Stars, but uh, none of them had included Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was by far the most famous uh, Western athlete in Japan. I mean, I saw him countless times in, in looking at materials. He was in the media, often referenced. Um, so he's seen as this, this figure that uh, that everyone in Japan knows, that everyone respects. And so he's coming to Japan, uh, and that's very exciting for the Japanese people. But this All-Star team, of course, is going around playing – these, these, this Japanese all-star team and beating them repeatedly. Um, that's, you know, pretty much everyone expects that. Uh, and Sawamura uh, becomes famous when this, this high school boy uh, pitches a game and, and strikes out not just Babe Ruth, but, but several of these other players. 
uh, in, in sequence, actually, uh, and ends up, they end up losing the game uh, to the Americans, uh, but, but they held, hold them to one run, and it's a you know, home run that's hit by Lou Gehrig. Uh, at one point in the series. And so this, this game then propels Sawamura to kind of, he's already had been famous because of the, the high school tournament that there was actually the middle school tournament, but high school tournament that had, had started in Japan in the twenties uh, and had kind of grown and become popular. So he was already known as a, as a potential college, you know, star, you know, not going to college, but playing in this professional team. Um, but, so this event, though, propels him to national prestige and even international prestige. As I point out in the chapter, many of the newspapers in the United States actually cover or uh, have some kind of coverage of this this series and this game. Um, although it's the coverage in the United States is actually all it's it's kind of fascinating how incorrect uh, it ends up being that they have Babe Ruth hitting the home run. Um, and in fact, it's it's not him, and uh, they you know get the, the facts wrong about Salamuda's uh, why he's not in school, and um, and then so Salamuda becomes ends up joining this first ever kind of professional team or first team that actually sticks around. There's a few attempts before that, but this professional baseball team he joins this team becomes kind of a key figure in the early history of professional baseball in Japan. A lot of people argue he kept the league alive uh, with his celebrity uh, when he pitches. Um, his name is highlighted uh, on the articles that talk about the game, you know, Salomon pitches, you know. Um, and so he's this pivotal figure. And then he also, of course, comes of age right at the moment when Japan is at war with China. Um, so he's drafted to go fight in the war in China and is talking about his experiences there, very kind of pro-military in those experiences, and then comes back um, plays more baseball, and then is drafted again um, shortly after Japan enters the war with the United States. Uh, and then the most, the longest article that he kind of writes for this baseball magazine, Yakukai, um, about his wartime experiences is actually an account of his battle in the Philippines against the Americans. Uh, and this is a piece that, um, based on a lot of the other articles I read about him, that I think probably had some ghost writing uh, going on, but it's very, very kind of down the line kind of uh, what we might think of as propaganda, kind of anti-American propaganda. There's some of the stories that are kind of told over and over again and accounts of the atrocities the Americans commit are, are you know, right in the middle of this, this account of his experiences. Um, but it's one of the points I make is that he becomes a champion of the war, at least his image in terms of how he's portrayed. He is championing the war. He is saying baseball has a role to play because, uh, you know, his point is that what allows him to save many of the people in his unit is his ability to throw grenades um, and what allows him to throw grenades so well is the fact that he was a baseball player. Uh, he emphasizes this idea, again, that baseball and war are intimately connected uh, for him, but that baseball can be very useful um, to anyone interested in building up a healthy, strong body uh, and that, that this is something, baseball can do that for anyone, not just him. Uh, and I, I make the point that that is, in some ways, it's a, it belies a lot of the stories of baseball that people think of when they think of baseball in wartime Japan. They think of it as being persecuted. Um, and then, in fact, you know, there was changes made and it was not a good period for Japanese baseball, but that it was more complicated um, and that there were people that were very pro-baseball but also very pro, pro-war, at least in terms of how they were being portrayed. And then the interesting thing about Samura, he dies, then um, he comes back and then ends up playing a little more baseball and then is drafted yet again. And then shortly after that, he is uh, killed when his ship is is struck by a torpedo. Um, And after the war, he becomes a famous famous figure, um, not lauded for his baseball career, meaning that, but, but he's also kind of portrayed as a victim of wartime Japan. Um, and I talk about how his celebrity images goes from this person championing the war to someone who is victimized by the war. And it reflects a shift in how um, Japanese society itself is changing as a result of the, the kind of wartime experience and the post-war uh, experience. So, so you get this kind of dramatic shift in how he's portrayed um, in the wartime and then in the immediate post-war period. Um, so, so he's kind of a, a fascinating figure for looking at sports and how they are used um, to mobilize for war, because uh, I think you know, in in some ways he's not that different from what we might see in uh, an American context at the same time, looking more closely at uh, at baseball stars from that from the World War II period.
So I want to jump to the athlete you talk about in the in the epilogue of your mm-hmm. book, and that's that's Ichiro. Ichiro yes, and uh, so now it's been 11 years since Ichiro joined the the Seattle Mariners, and uh, now he's coming to I'd say the end of his career. So what has been mm-hmm. the significance of Ichiro for the Japanese star system? Um, well, I mean, what I found fascinating about Ichiro is that, I mean, he what you see with him is that you see many of the same patterns um that then that's where i mean because i i didn't go into the book thinking i was going to find any kind of uh patterns and and how people in terms of how sports stars are talked about how they're understood uh, and so that's when i was really struck in looking at uh hitachiyama and seeing this kind of self-made image and the way these narratives are constructed about these stars seeing that as early as i did and then the way that you see that kind of persist it's of course changed and that the changes reflect changes in in japanese society and uh and that of course i mean hitomi's story is different from hitachiyama's but um but but you see a change but there's also these major elements are still there so that's one of the things i think that is fascinating about ichiro this emphasis we see on um uh kind of a national identity nationalism and the way it gets tied in with him um and the the ways in which um, he is still kind of portrayed as being this very filial son, and part of the reason for his success is is the fact that he listened to his father, mm-hmm. um, you know, sacrificing playtime with his friends to to do what his father suggested. Um, but it's also this idea of hard work uh, is is critical, um, and so I think that that um, is one of the most interesting things about Ichido for me, and the way that you know he kind of exemplifies how some of these patterns have continued despite the fact that you can't get more different from Hitachiyama uh, to to Ichido in some ways. I mean, a huge sumo wrestler in, you know, at the turn of the century and, you know, a, a baseball star at the, at the turn of millennium. Very, very different times, and, and, and a lot has changed, but there's still this kind of pattern. The other thing that I think is fascinating about him is that the way that he has, because he plays in the United States, um, he really gets at this idea that I talk about uh, in the book of, of co-constitution in a way that um, some of the other athletes didn't. Um, co- and co-constitution is this idea that uh, both the, the athletes, and this is probably why the, the star systems of comparisons are so important, is that the athletes kind of are used as a, as a measurement in some ways for people to kind of determine, well, who are we and who are you? Uh, and so when you see this in particular, when you get kind of transnational comparisons, um, you know, the Americans look at Hitachiyama and say, well, we're, we're good athletes because we're not big and fat. Mm-hmm. Um, where the Japanese look at Hitachiyama and say, well, we're, we're big, we're bigger than Americans, or we can have our athletes be bigger than American athletes. Um, and so you get these kind of differences, but it's always looking across and judging yourself based on someone else. Um, and, because Ichido plays in the United States, you see, I think that's even more apparent than what a lot of the other athletes I looked at who were who were known abroad. Um, and so, you know, like with Sawamura, you see some of this um, emphasis on on him kind of being this, well, the, the Americans are coming into Japan and they're kind of, they're frustrated by the fact that Sawamura does that well um, in some ways. They, they applaud him and praise him, but they're also kind of critical of him to the point that they, you know, Babe Ruth famously blames it on the sun. That's why he was struck mm-hmm. out. Um, but but with Ichido and with some of the ways he's been talked about here, there's this idea that he's coming in and his success is telling the United States what's wrong with us. Um, you know, so this idea that he's a throwback star and that's why he's popular and that's why he's succeeding. He's not after the big hits and he's not after the big money. Um, you know, and he's disciplined and that's what's wrong. So it's this suddenly American society is looking at a Japanese athlete to tell them, not so much about Japan as, I mean, there's assumptions made about what he means about Japan, but that what's wrong with us. Um, so I think that that's a kind of an interesting development that you see with, with Ichido because he's actually competing outside of Japan. Uh, as, as, I mean, that's what he does, uh, unlike a lot of the other stars. So, so I think that makes him really kind of a fascinating sports star to look at. And, and he's just fun to, to talk about, too. <laughs> <laughs> Is that going to be your next book, Ichiro? No, no, I actually am uh, working on something related but uh, different. I'm actually uh, working right now. I've got two projects going. One, I'm uh, looking, kind of going back and doing some work with, with Okinawa. But the current one I'm working on is um, uh, a study of disability and sports in Japan, looking in particular at the Paralympic mm-hmm. movement. Um, I've got a, a 
paper here going to be out here hopefully soon on the, the 1964 Paralympics. Um, but it's similar in the sense I'm looking at how you have this international kind of transnational movement come in, and I'm interested in exploring how that movement shapes perceptions of disability and the disabled body in Japan, as well as uh, how it you know has an impact on on policy towards disability. So, so continuing in some ways with what I've been doing, um, but taking it a slightly different different mm -hmm. direction. So I know Dennis that you teach a class on uh, on Asian sports, sports in East Asia, mm -hmm. and uh, I was wondering, do you, you know, do you have a message for the students when you're talking about star systems in terms of uh, here is a point of similarity that we see between star systems in Japan and the United States, and but here's a key difference? Hmm. Good question. I mean, we definitely talk about it. And I think one of the things that's come up when we've, we've talked about this is that the students are surprised by the similarities that they see. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is actually, you know, I don't know, my, my guess, my hope with the book is that it will put Japanese sports stars out there in a way that people haven't seen them. Um, I mean, many people have just been a kind of dismissive yeah. of this idea because it's an assumption that they're just, they're just copying what the West has done. They copied the sports and so then they copy the sports stars. And, um, you know, and I think it's of course more complicated than that. Um, but then, but also I think, we, because there hasn't been any information out there, there hasn't been the ability to make comparisons um, about, uh, at least good comparisons about, you know, how these things actually ha happen in Japan and how they happen here. Because I, I think it would be fascinating to actually see, as, as I, I kind of raise this point, you know, if we have a similar argument in the United States that, you know, hard work, and I think you hear this all the time, that hard work is what makes a sports star a sports star and what makes what makes the winning quarterback the winner compared to the loser. It's because they work harder. Um, and then you have that same argument in Japan. Well, then what happens when those two people get together um, and they compete and one of them has to lose? Um, so does that mean somebody doesn't work harder or do you then suddenly start looking for other explanations? And so, um, so I think that that's, that's a, a point that I try and emphasize, you know, that when we can actually start looking at these comparisons and looking at the similarities, it might make us ask suddenly different questions. Um, and so, so that's one thing, but I guess, you know, the, one of the big differences is as you look at the Japanese system, the Japanese star systems and the, the paradigms and things like that, um, is that the, in the Japanese case, there is this emphasis on filial piety, um, and kind of devotion to parents and kind of showing your devotion to parents. And we, that gets a little more emphasis than what you see in the United States. I think it's there in the United States. It's maybe not the kind of ultimate kind of emphasis that we see in, in Japan in some cases. And then again, part of this is, as I, you know, I do emphasize that I could not look at all sports stars in Japan <laughs> um, that I'm looking. These are, you know, I think fairly representative, but in some ways, you know, you probably could find a sports star who, you know, is, is very different uh, and you get you get it similar yet different uh, interpretations. That's part of the nature of this. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I would be hesitant to talk about the, the American side yeah. um, and what I see is the, the, the differences there. But, uh, yeah. but I, I hope that, you know, it will we can start maybe asking some some new questions. Uh, that would be my hope that, that this, this study can put some ideas out there and, and get us thinking about this and asking some new questions about maybe that question exactly, like, well, so how do these differ when we move beyond the simple kind of stereotypes that Japan is team-oriented and the U.S. is individualistic, you know? Yeah. What, what, what do we see when we look a little more closely? Yeah, yeah. No, and reading it and thinking of that, of that notion of filial piety, the one example I, I thought of, the, probably the, the greatest American example, is, is Mickey Mantle and his dad mm -hmm. taking him out you know, behind the shed and throwing him pitches and so forth. And, mm -hmm. and so then how is, uh, how is that story of Mickey Mantle and his dad presented differently, or how was it presented differently here in the States when Mickey Mantle was a star as opposed to... Uh, you know the story of of Ichiro and his father. Is there is there a different notion of 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 Mickey Mantle's relationship with his dad as opposed yeah. to the relationship of Ichiro and his dad? So that would be a fascinating, and that's that's the kind of question that I think is it's a it's a different type of question that that I think is really productive uh, in some ways. So we have these similar things. So what is it that makes them different? Yeah, um, yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that you know the, um, yeah, that would be just a kind of fascinating example. And one of the best examples I have of of those kind of comparisons is uh, Tim Lincecum. Yeah. Um, I had a bio, a short bio of him from ESPN, um, and I didn't tell the students who it was, um, and I just read it to them in class and uh, left out his name um, and left out any identifying details, and then I asked them to tell me who it was. And many of them told me it was Ichiro. Ah. Um, so it was kind of fascinating to, to have them kind of, and then when I told them, they were surprised. Um, but, you know, it's that's when you say, oh, there are these similarities, but, but you know, maybe there's, there's subtle differences in how they're presented to us. And, and you know, it's, we definitely, we don't use the word filial piety for sure, but yeah. we have this sense of, you know, obeying your parents as part of what, what some people would see as a, a key kind of idea. So, yeah, so fascinating, fascinating. Example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a great thing I liked about this book is that it raised a lot of, uh, you know, by, by looking at the Japanese context and, and sports celebrities, it did raise a lot of questions about, you know, how we in the States view, view our celebrities. So, so thanks a lot for coming on the program. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to an interview with Dennis Frost about his book, Seeing Stars, Sports Celebrity, Identity, and Body Culture in Modern Japan, published in 2011 by Harvard University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from Russian studies to biography. Please friend New Books and Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can give us feedback and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.